This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Fall of Delta Green. Shaping Dramatic Scenes. Choice Research and Game Design. And Savitri Devi. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful. So you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. It's once more time for the covert self-promotion of the rest of this here podcast to turn into the overt self-promotion of Among My Many Hats. Of course, this is a segment where either Ken or I, and I bet you can guess this time that it's Ken because I'm the one throwing the segment, talks about an exciting new project. And that new project could not be more exciting in this instance because it is Fall of Delta Green, Ken's latest gumshoe core book uh, set in the past of a classic role-playing game setting from Arc Dream Publishing under license. Uh, but Ken, let's, let's envision, uh, since our hobby is growing uh, by leaps and bounds and we're getting new people in all the time, that unlike our longtime listeners who are no doubt not only slavering for Fall of Delta Green, but probably have already purchased it either through the pre-order or, or by the uh, Delta Green Kickstarter that uh, occurred earlier. But let's say that you say it packs unplugged. Where uh-huh. there's the... The aisles are flowing with people who know they love role-playing games, even though they're not quite sure what they are yet. And so uh, fresh-faced folk uh, of all varieties stream up to the booth, and they pick up Fall of Delta Green, and they want to know what it is. What do you tell them? I would say that it's Apocalypse Now, Cthulhu Mythos. You are hunting the Cthulhu Mythos throughout the world of the 1960s in uh, the backdrop of uh, Vietnam, uh, the protest movements, uh, uh, rock and roll, uh, LSD, all of those great things. And uh, you are working for the government, but you suspect that the government does not trust you, and you surely do not trust the government. And so uh, there's your core activity right there, folks. You're uh, hunting the Cthulhu Mythos for the government in the 1960s. Uh, so the uh, 1960s are, uh, you know, a fertile uh, time for uh, things to fall apart. You're playing Delta Green before it becomes a rogue agency, and you're presumably perhaps playing the events that lead to it 
becoming a rogue agency. Uh, You're now, doing your part. <laughs> yes. So it's uh, by no means a stretch uh, for the original Troika of uh, Delta Green creators, uh, Adam Scott Glancy, John Tynes, and Dennis Detweiler, to uh, create uh, something about the fall of America. Uh, but, Ken, how did you enjoy uh, writing uh, allegorically and, and tentacularly about if not the fall of America, a fall of America. Well, I mean, by and large, one or two minor exceptions notwithstanding, I'm, I'm neither a Nixon Republican nor an LBJ Democrat, so when their hubris leads to inevitable destruction, I find it mythically satisfying, if not uh, necessarily a good outcome for us or the world. And so, therefore, you can take that same message of uh, hubris and nemesis that is basically the message of the 60s and 70s uh, writ large and uh, drop it into the world of Delta Green because Dennis and uh, John and Scott cleverly basically did that. They didn't have quite that same amount of rhythm because that's all sort of necessary backstory to why Delta Green is in secret. But, you know, the fall comes from somewhere. And if you look at American history throughout the 1960s, you look at a government that believes it can do everything, takes on more than it can chew, perhaps over-bureaucratizes the solution and uh, under-manages it. And the result is uh, the world of today in many respects. And that is sort of the lesson of Delta Green is that, you know, the the, the best and the brightest in uh, the uh, Kennedy phrase uh, can no more stop the Cthulhu mythos than they could stop Ho Chi Minh. So advice for players on how to create characters who will undergo that arc, who will embody that sense of Kennedy-esque optimism into an arc that takes them through LBJ uh, coarseness and corruption into the downward spiral of uh, Nixonian America. How do you build your character in order to uh, make them undergo a, a personal journey that mirrors the both the cosmic journey of the mythos intruding, uh, but more specifically the uh, historical tragedy of uh, the hubris of American hegemony in the 60s. One of the things is that the, the the rules and the setting really backstop you. You build your character, as with most gumshoe games, you're playing a, a character who's trained, uh, uh, presumed to be very competent, so you're sort of on that high. It's got a, a few more points than the standard gumshoe uh, build. It's up there in sort of not quite Knights Black Agents country, but it's up there. But, but uh, spoiler, folks, it will spend those points. <laughs> it will spend those points, yes. The stability economy is much tighter, so you have to spend your downtime and some of those points to get your stability back by reinforcing your bonds with other people. Those bonds begin to look like, oh, great, I've got ablative armor against the mythos. This is terrific. Oh, right, the ablative armor is my ability to function as a human being. Maybe that wasn't so all right. And so as you burn those bonds and you uh, begin to have to work harder and harder to maintain stability, then the mechanics of the rule system also begin to get harsher and harsher as the game moves forward through the decades. And of course, that's that's up to the handler, as we call the GM, to uh, adjudicate. And the handler may say, no, I kind of like to have uh, character continuity have a pl uh, bigger role. And so I'm going to play it all at that sort of Kennedy-esque, bright and shining, more forgiving uh, stability economy, or maybe I'm going to jump right to Nixonian harrowing because this game's all about psychological destruction and we're going to play it on the toughest setting. It, I always like to put different modes of play into uh, my gumshoe games because I think that that was such a terrific idea when Alan Varney did it in his paranoia. And it really, I think, allows you to sort of offer the player 
you know, three games in one or five games in one or two games in one so that they can play uh, and ideally sort of mix and match and figure out exactly the comfort setting that they like playing at. But if you play it as written, you'll begin with all of these great points and all these great abilities. You'll begin to sort of start spending them and scrabbling to maintain any connection to the human world. And then you'll start scrabbling to spend them to maintain any connection to yourself. And then you'll probably die. But maybe, (laughs) maybe if you're lucky, you'll die before that. Oh, before we talk about anything else, we have to say that this is flat out the most gorgeous looking book that Pelgrane has ever produced. I, th- I think it's safe to say. Uh, graphic designer uh, and art director, co-art director Jen McCleary does just an astounding job of incorporating both original illustrations and uh, public domain uh, photographs. And it just it's really, uh, you know, another level of visual presentation for Pelgrane. Yeah. When I, when I opened up the, uh, the, the PDF, when it, you know, to do the dev pass and, and make sure that I'd spelled Vietnam right or whatever else, it just blew me away how, how great and how not so much now, because it doesn't look now, but it does look now because it's a modern graphic design, but how evocative of the era it was without just going all spirals and paisleys and sort of cheaping out in that way. There's a couple of, of sort of knowing nods to some sixties graphic uh, design. Certainly the color sense, I think is very, uh, mid sixties, but the, but the design is of the era without being of the era, if you follow me. And, and it's just, as you say, it's just gorgeous and beautiful. And the degree to which she sort of put, takes this collage effect and, uh, and these sort of abstract expressioning pieces of, uh, collage art and, and, um, uh, and art, almost Pollocky sort of art. Uh, and sort of uses them as backdrops and overlays and uh, color elements. It's a really great looking book. And I, and I like even, you know, down to the choice of the color of the, of the pages. It's that sort of, it's not quite faded sepia, but it's definitely something you can think, yeah, this maybe has been sitting on a shelf for 40 years or was carried into a jungle once and then wiped not entirely clean. <laughs> I, I really, I, I love the book. Uh, it does not smell of defoliant though. No, so. it does not. Uh, we have, we have, Put a D defoliant on it, and so now it's good. An, an agent orange-orange. Uh, so let's talk mechanics for a bit. Delta Green, uh, in its original incarnation, uh, was an outgrowth of Call of Cthulhu, and then uh, a new uh, rule system was uh, designed for the current version uh, that stands alone from the uh, Call of Cthulhu tradition, and Gumshoe is yet its own thing. Uh, Gumshoe's combat is, uh, as we described uh, in an earlier uh recent show sort of in the mid-range of lethality, uh, whereas uh, Delta Green is very, very lethal. So how did you uh, thread those two strands for Fall of Delta Green? Uh, There's a couple of things. I didn't retask the gumshoe system. I didn't just make all guns more lethal or um, uh, uh, flatten out the, the health curve, because I think that keeping the core of gumshoe is important to people who want to play gumshoe, and certainly to people who want to interoperate this game with Trail of Cthulhu and Night's Black Agents and the Azoterrorist, because that was my other goal, was not just to adapt Delta Green, the role-playing game, but to make sure that this game served as a resource for other gumshoe gamers if they wanted to maybe play a Night's Black Agents game set in the 60s, or they maybe wanted to play a Trail of Cthulhu game set in the 60s. They would be able to use some of this material. That said, Delta Green's core activity, as, as Greg Stolze describes it, Delta Green is a mechanism for making dead players. And so characters, dead player characters. Yes. I'm, I'm sure that Greg, yes. that was a slip of the tongue. And but, the insurance uh, agency uh, commands that we specify that. Right. And so I added a lethality mechanic 
to the game to match the lethality mechanic in Fallout Delta Green, where if you're hit by, say, a grenade or an artillery shell or a fully automatic uh, burst of uh, rifle fire, uh, you might just die. And even if you don't die, the damage from that is much higher than sort of standard, even standard explosion damage or standard auto-fire damage in Nice Black Agents or in uh, Trail or in other gumshoe games. And that sort of notion of you can carry out things at this sort of low single-shot level, and maybe you'll be okay, but if it ever gets up into lethality, you're a dead person. That, I think, thematically works with the game and also conveys some of the really terrifying possibilities uh open to a game that is going to take place on you know, several global battlefields, I'm sure, plus uh, the Lord knows how many uh, weird revolutionary movements in, in America. So you have any number of, of opportunities to get very, very dead very, very fast. I did, I think, tweak some of the toxins to be more toxic than they are in uh, Night Spike Agents, though you, you'll want to double check that. The um, uh, And the monsters, of course, are much, uh, by and large, much worse than they are in Trail of Cthulhu just because the Delta Green monsters are worse than the Call of Cthulhu monsters are, and I wanted to just adapt them straight from uh, Delta Green, the role-playing game. And that that just lets you say, oh, if I'm running Trail, I can now have a tougher uh, version of Ghouls or a tougher version of Deep Ones, but if you're running um, uh, Fall and you're like, ooh, I don't know, these are kind of tough, you can go back and run the Trail ones as their kid brothers. So it's just more more variety, but the variety is skewed towards danger. Also, the uh, auto-fire, using auto-fire is much cheaper, so players will be more inclined to do it, which means, therefore, they will be less inclined to kvetch if they get uh, machine-gunned in their turn. <laughs> um, now, if you're going the other way, if you're familiar with the Delta Green mechanics and are playing Gumshoe for the first time uh, to uh, experience the a past generation of Delta Green, uh, how does the Gumshoe system reframe play for for you what's going to uh, be different for you as a new gumshoe player who's used to delta green i think one of the things that's going to be different is getting used to the sense of competence yeah i did not change that about gumshoe it's one of the things i like about gumshoe in fact um i've always i mean i admire zero to hero in the abstract i hate playing it at the table i like starting as someone that you're going to make the movie about not someone you're going to make the movie about in five adventures um, uh, I, I, I think that that's more fun, uh, at the table and it lets me as GM or me as game designer, uh, unleash more, uh, awfulness, uh, early, which is sort of my fun. So the, uh, the thing that you're going to get, get a, uh, a little, uh, heady, I think is you're going to be having that sense of that gumshoe competent character, the auto success with investigative, the ability to guarantee a hit with a, but by spending three points with a rifle, that's not something you can do in, uh, in, uh, Delta Green, the role playing game or in Call of Cthulhu. It's, uh, it's big brother, it's ancestor. So those sorts of feels of competence are going to maybe seduce you a little bit as you play Fall of Delta Green. But again, I mean, it's still Delta Green and you will rapidly recognize that being competent at dealing with human scale foes is helpful. But it's up to you then to really be proactive and reframe the adventure in terms of making sure you're only fighting human scale foes. Because if the thing behind the door ever gets out, well, you know, you're, you're no more survivable really than you are in, um, uh, Delta Green. Maybe a little more because, uh, the uh, gumshoe system has that negative health pool in a way that Delta Green does not. Right. So, but the key thing is, uh, be near the napalm, not, not in the napalm. Exactly. As, as I think we all learned during our playtest on Christmas. Yeah. Speaking of which, uh, you've had the opportunity already 
to run a game of this run by someone else, by a Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. But there were pre-gens, of course, for a, a one-shot. Mm-hmm. What character would you design for a campaign that somebody else is running for you to play in? I like to play a character so that my sort of... Much depends, I think, on on who I think is running it. But the two kinds of characters I like to play are either the sort of Jason Bourne, Batman-type uh, badass on that level, or I like to play a guy who's basically sort of me only with reflexes. So I would maybe be like a CIA analyst. There's a, there's a, a field, in fact, there, because as with regular Delta Green, you pick your government agency that you work for, your, your department, and then, um, uh, that gives you the little template with which to build your character. There's a actual thing that was a real thing called the, that's called the Defense Research Division. And it was a thing in the Library of Congress where the Department of Defense, it was the Department of the Air Force, and then the Department of Defense took it over, uh, as guys who work in the Library of Congress, and their their job is to look things up for anyone in the Department of Defense who needs to know things. So that's their job. They're basically super uh, reference librarians who, who look there, the consulting uh, defensists. And, of course, in the world of Delta Green, they're also looking up, you know, occult manifestations and doing research and trying to figure stuff out for Delta Green. And playing one of those guys who sort of thrust into the field because he's the only guy. I'm sorry, you're the only expert on um, uh, Trinidadian Obeah. We need you down there. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm really uh, – nope, you checked out. <laughs> According to this, you're, um, uh, you're, you had a sharpshooter rating in the Army. That was literally 20 years ago. Yeah. And I was oh, fighting, my rotator cuff. <laughs> yes, and I was fighting the Italians. I was not – oh, no. Ah, so off you go. And that would be kind of a fun character to play, to have all that sort of book knowledge, and I could sort of bring as much of that as I wanted – into the game and then to sort of just be the guy who already knows he knows too much and is just trying to survive uh the, the experience. I think that'd be another fun thing to to play in that. But again, I mean you read you read a James Elroy novel and you've got 50 ideas for a character to play in the Fall of Delta Green era, you know, maybe you want to play Bondurant, maybe you want to play uh some sort of shady uh former FBI fixer like um, uh, the historical uh, Robert Mahu who is just, you know, oh no, yeah, I was FBI. I still know everyone in the bureau. N- nothing can touch me. I just don't have to follow government procedure, but I still have to be Delta Green because otherwise they'll literally kill my family. So there we are. Well, we're going to uh, talk a bit more about Fall of Delta Green in the weeks to come because there's all sorts of uh, cool stuff to uh, dig into and uh, as is our want uh, squeezing one mere segment out of a uh, massive creative project is not enough for us. So it's we'll be back to the topic. Yes. Uh, but in the meantime, let's uh, head on through uh, the uh, uh, no doubt not booby trapped commercial that uh, lies ahead and see uh, see what's on the other side of that. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green. 
caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrane Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? Through the haze of cigarette smoke and a haze of mid-priced bourbon in a jelly jar, we go over to the IBM Selectric, we turn the little dial, we run the uh, paper up out of the out of the platen, and it says, typed there in that beautiful Selectric font, how to shape dramatic scenes, and then you put that down on the pile of paper, the carbon paper near it, pile of paper, at the top of that is how to write good, oh, we must be in the how to write good hut, and look at that. We've already seen our topic sentence. Yes. We're, uh, the the, uh, the segment's getting more Falconerian uh, every time you you introduce it. Yeah. Well, it's possibly the co-host is getting more Falconerian. You don't know that. <laughs> well, I hope that's true only up to a point. Yeah. Uh, so, yes. How to shape dramatic scenes. Although Cornell Woolrich died of gangrene. He died of untreated gangrene. He just got gangrene in his leg and couldn't be bothered to go to the hospital for it. So that's uh, that seems more like you, frankly. <laughs> there's always a worse writer death. That's that's what I've learned. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so uh, first step in how to write good is if you smell gangrene, take action. Take you action. Know? Even Quick even if action. you live in the United States where there isn't a healthcare system, really. Still, get that gangrene. They'll check out your gangrene. Uh, They'll do that. Even in in America, we're anti-gangrene. And you could ignore the gangrene bill later. But we digress. (laughs) We we almost pregress. We haven't even gotten to the point yet. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. You're not actually digressing if you haven't gotten to it. Let's get to it. Uh, Shake this dramatic scene, smart guy. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things about shaping a dramatic scene is to cut out all the nonsense at the beginning and get to the point of the scene. I was going to introduce this a little later, but it seems apropos now. So was that, was that O. Henry who said, um, uh, cross out the first page of everything you write? Uh, yes, I believe it. it, it I, I'm going to say it was. Uh, if not, there'll be a twist ending at the end where, where it wasn't. Where we um, reveal it wasn't. And so... Yeah. Uh, uh, you may, uh, as a um, beginning writer or an emerging writer, be inclined to write in all of the parts of a uh, an interaction from the very beginning of that interaction. And in fact, this is something that you see a lot in older uh, films and in uh, in novels. It's not quite an issue because you're not to the same extent worried about pacing. But still, even so, in whatever medium, skip out all of the opening pleasantries. So. Unless there's something really important that happens when the characters first meet at the beginning of of, uh, whatever it is. When you first introduce a character, I think you can have some more opening pleasantries because how they open a conversation kind of reveals something about their character. If they're, you know, fiddling with the brandy and they insist on making sure you're comfortable and all the other things, that says one thing about the character. If they sort of are, you know, smoking a cigarette and ignoring you, that says something else. You know, that anything that reveals character, you wouldn't want to cut out. But in theory, there's all already, we already, well, we're going to get to that. There's uh, all sorts of ways to reveal character. And how do you do, Mr. Blankenstein? Oh, I am uh, perfectly uh, uh, good today, Mr. Flacula. Uh, how is how is your wife? Come on in. 
have a seat, all of that stuff. If you can skip that stuff, skip it. And even if you're thinking, oh, well, the way that he introduces himself tells us about his character, it's still not getting to the point of what's going on. So I I would argue, uh, you know, unless there's something absolutely crucial that you can't do without, skip all that stuff, right? And you can almost always, 99% of the time, move further into the scene. And and that's something you see surprisingly often in people who are finding their voice as writers, is that they will uh, write out all of the uh, the sort of chit-chat and pleasantry and small talk and and stuff that is uh, that people use in real life when conversing with one another because nothing is actually happening yet. So cut all that stuff out of this. To move back to where I was trying to get to, uh, the reason I put this topic on the docket is the TV and movie critic Matt Zollersites was on uh, the Twitters the other week saying that he gets very impatient with scenes uh, where there's a lot of uh, banter that reveals character, and then at the end they decide to do something. Uh, and he's an author of the... He's uh, written, I think, on The Sopranos. Uh, or not, he didn't... He wrote about The Sopranos, rather. And that's <laughs> something that you do see in a certain amount of that kind of cable writing, especially in that sort of HBO format where a bunch of stuff happens at the beginning of the season, then there's just sort of... It's like a hangout show for eight episodes, and then stuff happens at the end. Um, I would argue, however, that if there's a lot of stuff that is just banter that reveals character, you should also work to sharpen that up, too. Um, to go back to the terms that you'll know from Hamlet's hit points and that I'm talking about again in Beating the Story, which is my uh, book about uh, the building blocks of fiction, which will be out in May, uh, in a typical dramatic scene, you have a character who wants something going to the character they want it from, and that something may have a practical element, uh, they may be asking to uh, borrow the car, or they may just be uh, trying to tease that person and tell a joke, or they may be urgently trying to convey information that the other person doesn't want to hear. But underlying that, they're also seeking an emotional reward. They're seeking approval or to uh, uh, hurt the other person or to, uh, you know, win them over uh, romantically or sort of court them as a friend or show how smart they are, whatever it is. There's an, an emotional goal that that character is pursuing. And so that is the, the basic structure of any scene. Petitioner wants something. The grantor either uh, gives it or doesn't. So when you're thinking of a scene as, as just, oh, here's some character interaction that reveals character, nothing reveals character like having a conflict in a scene. So if you have stuff that's just kind of banter or just them kind of hanging out, find the conflict in it and find the emotional thread that runs through that, even if it is not the most high stakes interaction that you've ever had in the world. Because, you know, you may have, you know, Tony and Christopher hanging out, uh, you know, apparently uh, just sort of shooting the bull about something, whereas in actual fact, that affects their relationship or their power dynamic, perhaps to a subliminal degree, but to a degree that is interesting and if you're writing for actors, gives the actors something to play. And if you're writing uh, in the prose uh, page, gives the reader something to hang on to so that it feels like there's a direction to the scene, right? There's a, the scene has to be moving toward some resolution or another, and that resolution can be uh, practical as where they make a decision or 
can be emotional in terms of where the uh, their emotional dynamic is changed, uh, even if infinitesimally and not permanently uh, at the end of that scene. So conflict is direction. Uh, just having characters interact and say stuff to each other or make sort of fan servants references isn't enough. But if you, you know, have a cool sort of line about the continuity of your world that you want to sneak in or what, what have you, just keep that in the back of your head. Pursue the drama, pare it down so that it's only about the conflict between those characters, however muted or however large, and then you will find that you can work in all that other stuff. Because now, excitingly, it will have a point and a direction and a momentum, which is the difference between uh, an exciting scene and a flat scene. Uh, and we see a lot of flat interaction writing in genre stuff, particularly in, for example, in fantasy novels, because you can tell the author is just thinking, oh, it's time for them to interact. Characters don't interact in interesting fiction. They pursue conflicts. They seek things from each other or they uh, rebuff each other. What about an iconic interaction? And I'm thinking specifically of Holmes and Watson at the beginning of a lot of the cases Holmes and Watson will be sitting around the, the, the 221B and, uh, Watson will just be wool gathering or whatever. And Holmes will say, Oh, Watson, I see that you've, um, uh, taken up, uh, darts. And Watson will say, what, 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 what? And Holmes will explain how the it, ridiculous chain of reasoning by which he's figured out that Watson had taken up darts. And Watson would say, Oh my goodness, uh, what a, a surprising genius and devil you are, Holmes. And then the real client shows up and we get into the business of the case. Now you would say, well, th- there's no petitioning. There's no granting. Um, it's just a hangout. It's literally a hangout scene. And oh, then there's, that's absolutely petitioning or granting. So once again, Holmes is petitioning Watson to uh, have Watson uh, recognize his genius. Uh, so it reestablishes the power relationship again because it's the beginning of a new story. Uh, but uh, absolutely, whenever Holmes is describing in a chain of deductions, that's a total power move that he is pulling on whoever he is pulling it on. Um, also, that scene has a secondary function to establish the order because we are used to that between uh, the two of them. And then the disorder comes in when the... Uh, person comes in with the case. So this is an, that, that's iconic storytelling in which the iconic hero, uh, Holmes, uh, and Watson is just as iconic. Uh, Holmes and, Holmes and Watson don't, uh, change. They recognize disorder and change the world back to be orderly. Mm-hmm. And, but that initial scene, uh, that's classic, uh, petition grantor. Holmes is very needy. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, he certainly needs Watson. He doesn't seem to need very many things, but what he needs, he definitely he needs. He needs to go around telling people how needy he isn't. Right. Holmes is very needy. So you're saying that the drug addiction comes from a central place in his character. Uh, it just, just might. It, it just, just might. might actually be yeah. a part of why that character is so fascinating and, uh, an internal contradiction, which is what makes uh, fictional characters and also incidentally movie stars. Interesting. Yeah. And you can, and you can sort of take that though then as an example of how to write a hangout scene without wasting everyone's valuable time. A, be really great, but B, um, present that as fulfilling an emotional need of the character that doesn't necessarily advance the, the larger story, but still provides a satisfying moment, uh, because you recognize that that, uh, behavior has happened. Is that right? Because yeah. why do we hang out with people in real life? To satisfy our, our emotional need to, for companionship and right. being with other people. There's, 
you know, if we didn't uh, need to be there and didn't get, get an emotional reward from it, we wouldn't do it. And so uh, make the hangouts of your uh, sympathetic characters who hang out with each other at least as uh, emotionally resonant as your own hangouts with your own friends. So in some cases, it might be that you, you, in a, in a more equal relationship or more theoretically equal, a Fofford and Gray Mouser as opposed to a Holmes and Watson, you might have the characters both petitioning the other one to grant uh, their awesomeness. Yes, indeed. Uh, as as you will see in both Hamlet's hit points and beating the story, the one petitioner, one grantor structure is the simplest, uh, the simplest to write, simplest to understand as you're seeing it or reading it, and the simplest for me to under- explain in this context on this podcast. But in fact, there are all sorts of other patterns. You can have both of them need something for an, uh, from the other, and a negotiation occurs, and that each of them meets the other's uh, needs. Or again, you can have like a more than two characters in a scene, of course. Not every scene is a two-hander. Mm-hmm. And you can have all sorts of little petitions and grants going on at the end. And, and as you know, if you play drama system, at the end of a, a lengthy scene that goes a bunch of places, sometimes you kind of have to stop and go, okay, who was the petitioner? Who was the grantor? Who got what they wanted or got what they wanted taken away from them? So there are more elaborate ways uh, to do that, but it's still all based on the structure of it's all about uh, somebody or somebody's wanting something from another somebody or somebody's and either getting it or not getting it. And anything that uh, doesn't feed into that is something that you can either make feed into that or you should cut. And that's what gives you the, the shape of the scene. So it, it should never be the case of just, you know, banter you know, shooting you know your mouth off against each other, and then you get to the real meat of the scene uh, at the very end of it. Now, it can be that you can place the sort of key moment that moves the narrative any place in that scene. It's weird to put it at the beginning, right? To come in and they just yeah. agree to do something, and then they... And then they uh, just hang out. And then they just hang out. But it can either be sort of hidden in the middle where they have a negotiation, and then the negotiation uh, over what they're going to do next then goes into a character moment, or you can have the, the decision point at the end. And the question there is, what is your next scene going to be? If your next scene is also going to follow these characters from the result of that decision to be an outgrowth in the transition type described in Beating the Story, then you want to put it at the end because that's where you have your maximum impact. That's also where people expect it to be. So for variation, if you are going to cut away, if you're going to have a break transition and move to another character or another situation, uh, then you could sort of have that negotiation appear in the middle and then the uh, fulfillment of the uh, emotional grant occur after that. So if everything is always a, a clear button at the end of a scene that moves into the other scene, that also becomes wearying and is part of dramatic variation, you might sometimes want to, you know, move that back further into the scene. But if you want it to be something that has a lot of impact and pulls the viewer deeper into the narrative, uh, there's a reason why most people put that at the end. And you could imagine a, a notion where the grant happens at the very beginning and it's what happens that the, the play out of the grant or the way in which they grant it becomes the the point of the of, of the of the scene that you're writing so that at the beginning of the thing the detective uh goes to the cops and he says i need your help on on this um uh, mystery and the cop says 
yeah, I think that that's a good idea because we're not going to get it solved because the commissioner is a werewolf. And then the two of them compare notes and work out what's going on. Uh, and so it, it's sort of an informational scene in that it puts the reader onto the sort of the page of what we know about the mystery. But the petition and grant happen at the very beginning, and it's the two characters cooperating or working together or, or developing some other thing that is the bulk of the of the, of the actual screen time or scene right. time. And- and, and in the beat system analysis, that would be you had your dramatic moment, and then you have your procedural moment in which they discuss the practical uh, problem that they are then going to fix. But I think the practical problem we have is that we've run out of time for this segment. So let's uh, uh, check out this exciting commercial message and then find out what's past it. I shall grant that petition. Beautiful, evocative fantasy maps redolent of medieval Italy. In sales technique, we call that an invitation for the listener to say yes. Because the latest Ask the Gown Kickstarter has what you seek, the Summerland City Map Project. Navigate Joe Dever's World of Magnamund, the setting for the Lone Wolf game books. Made by cartographer Francesco Mattioli in close collaboration with Joe. And with Vincent Lazzari, devoted keeper of the Lone Wolf Flame. Born of Francesco's dream of creating city maps celebrating Lone Wolf and medieval Bologna. Are you saying that he based them on Earth? That's a yes, sayer of the saying, base it on Earth. Why, then, even if Lone Wolf is not your deal, you could use these stunning maps as a resource for any medieval or fantasy setting. You could not have said it better yourself. Choose between a single map of Holmgard or the collection of all ten maps. Follow the link in the show notes to the Summerlin City Map Kickstarter. Make the best choice of all by joining such backers as... Thomas Vallejo. Craig Maloney. Jan Zaleski. Alex Johnston. And the Redacted Files Podcast. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the friendly confines of the gaming hut. But, oh, look at that. We have a choice of six ciders or 20 ciders. We have a choice of pewter or resin. We have a choice of Cool Ranch or Nacho Cheese Doritos. We have a choice of album A of Peter Frampton Comes Alive or album B of Peter Frampton Comes Alive. Why? It's the, <laughs> the science mint copy or the choice. or the beaten up copy. Which do we right. use? Which do we use? Robin has been reading Shinya Iyengar's The Art of Choosing and is full of fun uh pop psychology facts that can hopefully inform our game designer. Perhaps it's real psychology. I don't know. I didn't read it. Robin, tell us. Right, it is it is real psychology. She's a, a researcher into choice and why we choose and, uh, and, uh, is also, of course, as a, an expert in her field is in touch with other researchers, uh, doing these sorts of experiments. And so there's a lot of kind of interesting information about choice in the book that I thought we could tease out a bit and look at its implications for game design, which is why we're doing this in the gaming hut and not in fun with science. Right. Now, so, be- now before we get to the fun with science in the gaming hut, does she address the uh, replication crisis that is currently seizing all cognitive science and all social science in general? Or is she just assumed that her stuff is fine and that she's sorted it out? Does she talk about the fact that these 
a lot of these choice experiments have been unverifiable going back the last 50 years? That That is not the, the thrust of your book. Okay. So, right. uh, as usual, anything in the social sciences has a whole bunch of asterisks. Um, she does talk to some degree, actually, uh, to a fair degree, about how uh, so many of these experiments are performed uh, using affluent, privileged <laughs> university students. And <laughs> right. so she does hit that topic in that way. And part of what she uh, is careful to do is to look at cross-cultural differences. So implicitly, there is some recognition of that. But of course, it's not it's not the thrust of the book. And it's what you have to look at. Uh, you have to keep in mind. Uh, for any work of sociology or and, and in fairness, many of our many of our uh, of our gamers, although fewer perhaps than used to be, are going to fit that same profile of um, uh, people who would have been uh, picked by the psychology professor to go through one of these choice experiments. Right. So. And replication is not a, just a crisis in social science. No, but a it's, 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 a, science, it's a bigger crisis period. in social science than it is in in, in uh, the hard sciences. Uh, it's it, even bigger. It's it's just as big in every field of science. There's oh, wow. very few people doing replication. Data isn't being shared. Like medical science, it's a huge problem right across the board. So, you know, <laughs> we, we can change it to not fun with science, but yes. <laughs> it's, 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 it's very endemic. And, but once again, we're digressing far from the topic of our. Right. It's, it's as though we're terrible at shaping dramatic scenes. This is Ken all hangout material. Has, has expressed his, uh, his uh, skepticism of psych- psychology. So let's talk about psychology. <laughs> uh, so, one series of tests was not just performed on privileged uh, white grad students, but was also performed on rats and pigeons and stuff. <laughs> and so, <laughs> but she repeats herself. <laughs> so one thing we know is that choice preferences. Uh, we like to think of our relationship to choice as, of course, part of our uh, conscious mind and uh, our, our rational thinking. But uh, some of the things that we feel about choice, we have in common. Uh, there, it turns out that they're not just uh, pre-human, but they're even pre-mammalian. So, for example, if you give a, uh, a rat or a pigeon a test where it seems to have a choice, uh, but is just as difficult to uh, get its reward w- without a choice, it will always take the route where there's another way it can go to get the reward, for example. So that the conclusion from that is that uh, we, as animals, not just as people, highly value choice when we can uh, take an option that gives us a bunch of different options. Even if those options are actually completely meaningless, we are always happier to have the illusion of choice, which of course is something I have always said uh, that we like to have the illusion of choice. But uh, sometimes it is in fact the illusion of choice we want because not only do we always want choice, but we are often paralyzed by choice and that we well, so it's the same as fat we want fat but then we're paralyzed by it <laughs> yes um and so we quickly start to uh experience choice paralysis when we're presented with too many choices so for example you may be familiar with the this study that suggests that people can ideally choose from any no more than seven things for example well it turns out that indeed replication uh, work was done on that study and uh Follow-up experiments suggest that maybe it's four. Maybe we can't uh, deal with any, we start to shut down after uh, any more than four uh, choices. However, our preference for choice is also culturally determined. So, uh, for example, uh, a lot of these tests have been done on Westerners. Turns out we 
value uh, choice more than, say, people in Japan do, and that people in Japan are much um, more avidly interested in uh, having others make choices for them, and we are have conditioned ourselves to want to believe that we're in command at all times, and therefore always want to have, if not more choice, a bigger illusion of choice or a bigger sense that we are choosing. So, for example, there's an experiment where uh, two groups of people in an old folks home, a bunch of them were told, well, here you have all these choices about uh, how we're going to set things up. So you, you get to choose to have a plant and you get to choose these activities and you get to choose this and that. And then another group of uh, people, the control group, were told, um, here's, we're giving you a plant. Here's your activities. It was presented to them without choice. And it turned out that the first group had significantly better health outcomes. Uh, and the second group did sufficiently worse that they had to stop the experiment because <laughs> the thought that they had choice, even though it was the illusion of choice, even though choice was uh, meaningless, they seemed got outwardly or practically they got the best care, the people who were able to create a narrative where they had control of all of those things prospered. The choice wasn't meaningless. They did or did not get a plant. It's not like oh, they no, said... They, they, everybody got a plant. It was just presented to you as... Oh, as like, oh, we, 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 everyone voted uh, and it turned out everyone voted that you get a plant. That kind of thing. Um, or, or rather, you know, you, you get a choice of, to, you, you get to choose to have a plant versus yeah. we're giving you a plant. But I mean, at some point, the guy who says, I don't want a plant would notice the green thing in his house or in his room, right? Well, it didn't get into that, but. Okay. I mean, I'm just, it's not I'm like, just trying to see, I mean, because I, I get the notion that you would there's say. There's the active choice to, uh, you know, presumably people would, could reject all of those things, but that's not how it was framed. And mm -hmm. as far as I know, there was no revolt against the plants. Well, I mean, who wouldn't want a plant? But my larger point is it's, there's always one guy who doesn't want a damn plant. So uh, I, I, I mean, I, I sort of I take the larger point and I'm, perhaps I am uh, mistaking the, 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 the plant for the for the room here in this experiment. Yes. Well, but let's, let's take move that forward. up with Shina So let, let's start to get uh, drill down a bit more then into things about choice that we can then apply to uh, designing role-playing scenarios and uh, or processes within games. So, for example, another really interesting experiment was uh, it was uh, people were given the opportunity to make all of these customized choices about cars that they were planning to buy or thinking about buying. And uh, it uh, the one group of people uh, was given the choice with the most options at the very beginning of the process, which was what color car do you want out of 40 possible colors? Um, and the other group was given that uh, choice with so many different branches at the end, and the choice structure started with the simplest choices and worked its way up. And the people who started with the biggest question, with the 40 choices, were much more likely to get uh, decision fatigue and uh, be sort of get bogged down and not know what they wanted at all and sort of give up and become demoralized, whereas the people who were carefully led from the uh, least number of choices on the choice tree to the most did much better. So that suggests, for example, uh, character creation systems. Traditionally, we look at those in terms of, well, what's the most basic thing about the character? And then how do you uh, go through that and add more bits uh, onto that character as you go in a sort of logical sequence. But what if 
uh, perhaps when we're designing uh, choice trees, we should start with the simple choices or reframe things so that they appear to be simple choices uh, so that we can lead people through the process of a multi-stage decision tree in a way that they find more enjoyable and uh, doesn't cause them to tharn out and get the uh, grognard in the group to just finish designing their characters for them. <laughs> I mean, so what would that practically be? Would that be we begin by saying, rather than saying pick uh, one of ten character classes and one of ten character races, uh, we would say pick what you want your character to do. Do you want them to be kill a lot of guys? Do you want them to be um, uh, a sneaky scout? Or do you want them to uh, improve uh, everyone's existence? Uh, you know, uh, sort of your, your DPS, right. your tank or your, um, uh, or your buffer. And then once they've chosen that, then we say, okay, of those, w- would you rather use weapons or magic? And then once they've decided that, you're like, okay, now that we, we know you want to be a sneaky fighter, here are the 10 classes of sneaky fighter that you could be. Right. And, and, and so, uh, you know, if you have a thing where you're deciding between, you know, six or 12 different, uh, character species, that, you know, decide your species at the end, even though logically you would think, oh, well, that's the most important thing about that character. But that character is not hit play yet. And it's part of your creative process. That's like, so, uh, you know, that's the, the you've exactly hit on what I would do to revise a complex character uh, process. Um, now, others of these things are, are sort of useful in terms of designing uh, scenarios so that the uh, players don't get choice paralysis when they're trying to decide in a group what to do. So, for example, uh, the toughest choice to make is one between two differently unappealing options. Brains just don't like that. They like binaries. <laughs> they like good or bad. They don't like bad in this way or bad in this other way. And welcome to almost every game session I ever run. Well, welcome uh, to the real know. world, people. <laughs> yes, welcome to the real world. Welcome to election 2016. So when you are framing uh, your choices in a scenario, you might want to think how many times you're going to do that, right? Because it might be uh, sort of interesting and, and sort of necessary in a, in a horror game, for example, uh, to do that a couple of times. But perhaps in the early going, you might want to look at some of the choices you're presenting them and find ways to frame them in terms of their advantage rather than their disadvantage, which is often just a matter of sort of flipping the way you describe it on its head, right? So that, and, and rather that's, than, that's easier in like an F20 game where you, instead of saying, oh, it's the Dungeon of Draconic Doom versus the Temple of Total Evil, you say it's the Dungeon of Solid Gold Goodies versus the Temple of the Emerald God. And you're like, oh, I do like an emerald. Oh, I like solid yeah. gold. And then once you get into it, then it's like, the reason there's full of gold is there's a dragon here. You got that, right? That was, you, you figured that part out? Um, Yeah, sure I did. Yes, exactly <laughs> so. So that you... You know, or the advantage, the advantage here is that, you know, we are, our healing spells are going to be extra powerful in this zone. Or the advantage here is that they don't know we're coming. And so, uh, whereas you flip it on the other side, your healing spells will be less effective here. And here, uh, they know you're coming. (laughs) It's a much harder choice to make. And it's the same choice. Right. And so that's just sort of a taste of how, uh, looking at the way that we present things and, we want to uh, put options in front of people that make them think they're choosing, but actually make a lot of choices for them. Uh, we want to uh, frame uh, decision trees from least 
to most complex and so the other way around, or instead of according to a, an arbitrary other story logic. And then finally, we want to frame uh, choices so that you're choosing between appealing things, choosing between advantages rather than choosing uh, between uh, disadvantages. And I think just those principles alone have a lot of implications for uh, not just role-playing games, but, and, you know, any tabletop game sign. And so then sort of pre-mammalian thing, you want to present a game that does provide uh, a choice experience as opposed to a game that is a pre-programmed game. And that's either that you can do that as a DM and you can certainly do that as a designer when you're designing a world. It's like, if you can only play one kind of thing in this world, if you, if this is the game of your playing samurai, then that's a little constraining. But if you're like, Oh no, there's, there's four to seven clans of samurai. And you're like, Oh, now I'm excited again. Uh, even though, yeah, you're still playing samurai. You're, you're still not in a, in a game where you could play any kind of thing. So that I think is, is one of the interesting things about that, that at some point you have to sort of pop that choice, um, and, and then sort of slowly reveal the depth of that world. Uh, you know, in Pendragon, you're picking, you know, it, it's, if anything, it's even more constrained than, um, uh, than, than a L5R game because you're just an Arthurian knight in a specific thing. It, it's a very specific set of choices, but the opening up of the, of the question of, of which morality, and that's a, a, a fairly limited palette, but it's still a palette. And then you start picking things and, and building out that, um, uh, that depth. I think, I think Pendragon may have sort of backed into a, a kind of a clever way to do the avoiding decision fatigue, even if when you look at it from the outside, you think, oh, this is a very narratively constraining game and it doesn't give right. you any choice. And then when it gets to the passions, that decision tree is very complicated and, you know, that a, a new version of Pendragon might benefit from that system where you, you know, divide a whole bunch of points between uh, more than four things and turn that into more of a, a choice tree uh, might be a, something that could give, uh, make that process easier for, for everybody. And so, for example, uh, you know, an interesting exercise is, is to ask ourselves a build point system where the whole point is you have, Nigh infinite choice. Here you go, clunk. Here's GURPS, clunk. Here's champions. How would that look like if you were to reorder that process from simplest to uh, most varied set of choices? Yeah. I mean, I, I, to some extent, that's what you did with uh, feng shui, where you've got just templates. And so rather than a build point system, you've got these templates. These are the examples of the kinds of guys that you can be. But even that is a bunch of different kinds of guys. Is there a is there a way to maybe organize, uh, even as a simple, let's, let's back away from reorganizing GURPS in the context of a 15 minute hut. Let's, let's look at, at feng shui. Is there some, maybe some choices? Because again, you're fairly constrained because you're, you're, you're martial art heroes. Yes, if I was to take the feng shui too and reorder it according to this thought, there would be a tree at the beginning, which would, rather than presenting you with the 16 different archetypes or 32 or whatever it is, I can't remember off the top of my head, um, that, uh, it would give you, uh, you know, either what period you want to start in or uh, what kind of fighty guy do you want to be. And then you would uh, blossom out from there in terms of finding the, uh, uh, it, even even as it's currently presented as a catalog with cool color pictures that you flip through, uh, that uh, the number of choices may be too great. If I was to, you know, Feng Shui 3, uh, you might want to put, you know, a simpler choice tree ahead of that, even though, you know, at now it's like, Pick one of these and you're done unless you want to fiddle with it. But, but even so, you know, there might be a simpler way to go. Uh, but 
uh, one choice we have to make is to get out of this segment, ah. which has gone on for too long. And uh, perhaps we can uh, pick up on these issues later, but it's time for us to head on to our next and final segment. What I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu mythos, I think paranoia, go-bags, guns... And opera. Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. It's time once more to wend our way up the cobweb stairs to wave jauntily at the portrait of Madame Lovatsky, which nonetheless continues to glower at us as we head on in to talk to the consulting occultists. And you would think that over the, the many episodes of this podcast, including the ones when we talked about Ken's book, uh, The Nazi Occult, that we would have covered all of the Nazi occultists. But Patreon backer Brent Kramer is here to point out that we have yet to talk about Savitri Devi, the mystical fascist currently being resurrected by the alt-right. So I guess, Ken, we've got at least one more Nazi occultist to talk about. At least. Yeah, Savitri Devi is, uh, well, I guess the first thing to say about Savitri Devi is that she's not of Indian uh, birth. Uh, she was uh, half uh, French, half English uh, citizen, and of Greek extraction. And since Savitri Devi is the one who's concerned with people's extraction, she could hardly cavil if I say she's an Indian by marriage. Um, she did, as a Greek, discover that the Greeks are the Aryans, um, because that's what you do when you're an Aryanist and something that is not uh, Norwegian. Um, even if you're a little runty Austrian, that's what you discover. Um, and so the so her, her uh, real name was uh, Maximiani Julia Portis. Right, and uh, to s- set her in time, she's born in 1905, so she's old enough to know better, and uh, died in 1982 um, uh, after a long mostly post-war career of being a frickin' Nazi, um, which I guess points for originality, but still. Uh, anyway, so she uh, began as a philosophy student, went and explored Greek ruins, because that's a thing you did when you were a philosophy student, student discovered uh, that there were swastikas all over them, because the Greeks uh, liked the sun wheel as, be- as well as the next guy, and said, oh my goodness, that proves the Greeks are Aryans, and therefore becomes a uh, naturalized Greek citizen instead of a, a French citizen, and then goes looking for Aryan pagans, because that's the best kind of Aryans, not Christian Aryans like you have in modern Greece. So she goes to India and falls in love with an Indian man and with India and with Hinduism. And the Indian man, at least, was already a Nazi sympathizer, but she did her best to turn the other two that way. Uh, right. So she was a, a actual spy for uh, the Nazis in India during the war, 
this uh, caused some tension with her mother, who was fighting with the French resistance back home. So she uh, fits in the trade craft hut as well. So what kind of trade craft hut activities did she get up to? Um, mostly what she's doing is she is uh, an, an Indian hostess who speaks English. And so uh, allied personnel would you know show up at their house or at uh, places that they would frequent, uh, hold parties. And, you know, as we are warned by the poster, loose lips sink ships. So she would get Allied military and uh, uh, government personnel uh, tipsy and excited, and they would spill secrets, and then she would share that information with the Japanese uh, because she was working with Subhas Chandra Bose's Indian National Army, which was the Indian Liberation Army that was uh, working with the Japanese uh, because the Japanese had been going around saying with uh, some logic, why should you be run by a bunch of Europeans? And right. then sort of uh, soft peddling the when you could be run by the Empire of Japan, uh, which is the punchline right. of that. And we covered him in a previous segment, so you can uh, head to the site and do a search for, for his name. Yes. And so after the war, she um, goes into Germany to see what all the hoopla was about and finds a, a few Nazis living in the rubble and says, what what a good thing that they that even being obliterated in a war didn't stop the Naziing. So she sort of, I guess, starts missing the point pretty seriously right around then, even if you could argue that the cause of Indian nationalism must uh, lead you to some ill bedfellows, as plenty of people have argued before and since. Right. And so she goes on then to uh, be an example of someone who just never stops Nazi-ing. No, no. She is. She has found her uh, fandom and is going to stick with it regardless of how bad the source material. Right. So she's one of the, the bridges between the uh, straight up and neo uh, Nazi strains. And so she's in there organizing and congressing with uh, people like uh, George Lincoln Rockwell. While still hanging out with uh, our buddy Otto Skorzeny uh, in Madrid and Nazi ideologists who'd fled to Nasser's Egypt. She's um, uh, partying with those guys um, because I, I I don't know if it's because of other contacts that she'd already made during the war or if it's because she went and sought them out, but she had a big network of people throughout uh, the Middle East that were very receptive to her brand of sort of third world flavored Nazism, which I guess is it was as exotic to them as it was to the Beatles uh, when it was third world flavored um, uh, nonsense. Uh, right. And so she's sort of uh, maybe this is the why she's captured in part the, the interest of today's crew is that she's working on internationalizing. She's internationalizing the blood and soil movement, and uh, never mind that contradiction. Right, international uh, she's already socialism, socialism. The, yeah. the richest, most aromatic kind. And yes. she um, uh, radicalizes your buddy, Canada's best neo-Nazi, Ernst Zundel. She's the person who turns him on to the hollow earth and the yeah. Antarctica and the flying saucers and all the rest of that and, nonsense. And Holocaust denial. Well, I was sort of accentuating the positive, but yes, she also turns him on to Holocaust denial. Yeah, and and by buddy, of course. Uh, we mean um, uh, content. Co-national. We don't mean buddy. Yes. yes. Uh, the, the magic beaver is no is also no friend of, of Ernst Sundle. Yes. Uh, the magic beaver um, accepts the reality of the Holocaust and probably gives him like a plain donut with no frosting. He doesn't even get a donut. Doesn't get a donut. Because he, That's, you, know, you know, I'm not going to question the magic beaver. That's not my way. No. So anyway, um, uh, and certainly not over that. She wrote a uh, a book called The Lightning and the Sun, which became sort of a a blend, a synthesis of Hinduism and Aryanism and Nazism to provide a ideological core to her uh, beliefs. That was very popular with a lot of people. And yeah, so it's, it's a pagan... Uh, fascism. And so yes. getting, 
you get all of that nasty, uh, inconvenient, uh, morality out of religion, uh, because if you want to start, uh, start with the mass murdering and, and oppression and want to get that rolling again, uh, you know, maybe find a, maybe create your own synthetic, uh, mysticism that, uh, doesn't bother with any of that stuff. Right. Her, her mysticism, um, uh, sort of combines the cyclical notion of the yugas, but in her version, what brings about the Kali Yuga is, uh, untermention of various sorts, and we shan't go into the specifics, but I'll bet you can guess. Um, and within the cyclical time, there are people who are of the time, uh, and those are people who are like, uh, Genghis Khan, who just sort of drive historical decay forward. They're the lightning. Um, uh, there are people who are above the time who attempt to transcend historical decay by leaving something permanent behind, and that would be like Akhenaten, the guy who was uh, a monotheist and crazy person in ancient Egypt, but she is, she's a Freudian, so she's accepting the, the notion of, of him as a monotheist figure, less the exception of him as a, a crazy, uh, monomaniac. And then, uh, not that that would have turned her off. And he would be the sun. And so Hitler would be both the lightning and the sun. He is harnessing the destruction of a Genghis Khan for a transcendent Eknaton type purpose. And so you want your, you want your world to be focused around finding the lightning and the sun person and making them your sort of messiah. And she believes that Hitler was um, uh, sort of uh, put into the, into, into history to, to become this sort of exemplar and moral of uh, uh, what do I want to say? Yeah. Sort of your, your, your flag to follow. And that is her, you know, sort of historical notion is that once you've identified the process of time, you identify the people who are a part of that process or against that process. And then you figure out, where to go from there? That's, um, and then it's full of a lot of, um, uh, sort of, uh, bourgeois because that's how you blend all those things together. Right. Um, and so, uh, any time when her popularity is on the rise is a bad time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's safe to say. I, I think before we get into sort of her, uh, her now, we should also mention her other great contribution was as one of the first, uh, thinkers on deep ecology. She yes. wrote a very, very powerful uh, uh, animal rights book called The Impeachment of Man. And again, this is probably out of her Hinduism, is the belief that animals have just as much sacred power and just as much uh, right to be running around the yugas as we do. And therefore, we shouldn't just be eating them and being mean to them. We should be vegetarians and we should be sensitive to our place in the ecology and we should be very conservationist. And of course, one of the things that we do know about uh, the Nazis is they loved their park systems. They loved forests and the nature, and they wanted to put those up and be very ecologically conscious in Germany. They wanted to, you know, dump all the industrial waste in Russia because who cares? But, you know, that sort of connection of, uh, I guess you'd call it the black and the green is something that, that Savitri Devi has picked up on. And a lot of, um, uh, sort of right wing neo-Nazi type guys did that. There's a lot of those guys up in the Pacific Northwest, not just right. because, uh, it's where, um, uh, there's a ton of, uh, of, of weird white loners, but also because it's full of unspoiled nature. And that's a thing that they believe is a part of the, of the purpose of having your, um, uh, your, your Nazi movement is to keep yeah, that stuff going uh, Because on. there's a, a traditional masculinity that's being evoked with a, uh, relationship, uh, with nature and a, a rejection of the industrial. And also if you want to think of yourself as virtuous while planning the, uh, displacement and murder and oppression of uh, all kinds of people, 
uh, one way is you can be sentimental about animals. So right, yes. Um, Hitler had dogs. Uh, uh, Savitri Devi apparently had cats. So there's no, there's no immunity pet keepers of the world. Um, right. Unless and I, I think them, Stalin was right. also an animal lover, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He he had dogs as well, I believe. Yeah. Although, you know, say what you want about Stalin, he didn't believe in national socialism. He was <laughs> it, it, he was for socialism in one nation. It's a whole different thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, the uh, best book on uh, Savitri Devi is a book called Hitler's Priestess by Nicholas Goodrich Clark, who was the best scholar of the Nazi occult and is sadly no longer with us. Um, but Hitler's Priestess is a terrific book if you want to get really deep into the Savitri Devi weeds. And is perhaps why I got a little deep into the Savitri Devi weeds is because I read that way back in the day. Right. Um, so uh, I guess the uh, sort of final note is it's not surprising to see mysticism as an element in our new wave of postmodern authoritarianism. Uh, there is also a strong mystical element in the Russian version of this. Yes. Uh, which is, uh, differently skinned, but, uh, structurally very similar situation. And I think, uh, part of what's going on is that, uh, when you are gathering people together in an attempt to create a more authoritarian world, you're on a nut gathering expedition. Uh, so it's very useful, <laughs> at least in the early stages, to have a mystical, mythic text for people to glom onto. Uh, now, the question of whether how useful that continues to be in a traditional totalitarian structure, uh, you know, because, of course, famously, uh, Hitler was at least passively accepting of all of this stuff while he was on the rise. But once he started locking things down, the occultists were among the first to go among the first to go. They were they were no longer useful. And yes. uh, in the which, which doesn't mean you know, that Hitler stopped being a mystic. His mysticism was just about uh, Wagner and uh, race theory, but it wasn't about Atlantis and fairies and um, uh, nonsense like that. Right. So uh, he's still a mystic, but he's not an occultist. And that difference has, has trapped poor Robin so many times <laughs> that it's only fair that it, uh, that Hitler also be a contributor to that problem. But yes, the, the occult part of it is um, still there is enough, there is enough uh, enlightenment lag left in our culture that if you come right out and say, Oh, I'm a Nazi because I believe in Atlantis. Um, you are more immediately dismissed than I'm a Nazi because of, uh, blah. And so there is, as, as you say, it, it helps to gather the nuts, but even, and I think in this early period, it also helps to segregate them in a lot of ways because like a lot of extreme movements, they don't want to police their own because they've only got like nine members. And if you purge four of them for believing in Atlantis, then you can't rent yeah. out a hall anymore. The purges will come later. The purges will come later. Well, let's all cross our fingers for that. Uh, well, let's hope they don't get uh, enough influence to stage any purges this time. Oh, I meant around. purging themselves. That, yeah, that'd be my they, bet. They just go right ahead and have their night of long knives well before they have their Reichstag fire, and we'll all be happy. Right, but at any rate, uh, she has a sufficiently long career uh, that uh, she can be a bad guy in both Trail of Cthulhu and uh, and Fall of Delta Green. So. She could be a part of your crossover there. Absolutely. She would definitely be a, a, a fall figure because a lot of what she's uh, doing is building this sort of 1960s world of, of radicalism on the right and also the 1960s world of the new age. And uh, she's a very powerful part of that uh, a trend within the new age, the environmental uh, part of it. And the fact that it springs from that particular root is 
is something that I, I guess people who are deep ecologists have to wrestle with a little more than I do, but is still something that would provide a, um, uh, a, a, a different element. If you're looking for a, a neo Nazi group in, in fall of Delta green, have them be Shubnigareth cultists where they are, you know, very much about uh, the soil part of blood and soil and they want to get uh, close to nature. And they're all very, very nice. They're also to in the blood part. <laughs> now no, that they think about it, they're not not they like into both. the blood part. They're not not into that. It's just that you know, it, you know, it's, they it's, do it's, something it's, different with the blood. Exactly, it's, it's something fun, yeah. something fun and kicky. Because she's also buddies with uh, the Nazi Dior. The other Diors were not as Nazi. Uh, one of them was actually a resistance Dior, but she was buddies with Francois Dior, who is a, a socialite um, and a part of the Dior uh, cosmetics fortune. And so you've got that going on. You've got another. Uh, if you, if you start looking for them, the sixties are, are, have got a lot of high end Nazis still, uh, for some reason. It's, it's like, it, it's it like take, it's 20 years later. Like it's 20 <laughs> the years math later. Works. Yes. Yeah. I mean, right now I, I'm pretty sure that there aren't that many high end Nazis left, but you know, perhaps I will be surprised. Uh, well, on, on that note, on that hopeful note of being yes. out of high end Nazis, uh, <laughs> let's uh, conclude this podcast and, uh, wave, uh, goodbye, not only to Madame Blavatsky, but to our listeners for another week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin. Join a top-secret elite alongside such backers as... Ryan Mannix. Ryan Lassiter. Chris McLaren. Rich Spainauer. And Jeremy French. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Get ready for your next trip to 1763 with the Time Incorporated shirt. Time Incorporated. Changing history since Aristotle was a triceratops. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>